God speaks to us in his word in 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all these things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> oh, man. Welcome back, students. No, this is not a trick. No, we are not trying to trick you into anything. <laughs> Look. We preach straight through the Bible. And we're preaching through a book called 1 Corinthians. I didn't plan it this way, but it just so happened that our next topic is one of the most controversial sections in all of Scripture. But I have so much faith in the Bible. I have so much faith in God's Word. There are a few things that I want to point out to you um, that we believe as a church here. If you're a guest in the room, um, man, welcome one. My name's Ben, it's good to have you here. Thank you so much for being here, really glad that you're here. Uh, we love this book because of what it says about our life. It says that all scripture is profitable. All scripture is profitable. That means this scripture today, that means other scripture as well. In this church, we have distinctives. One of our distinctives or things that we consider core beliefs are that we love the Bible. It's called Bible honoring. We honor the Bible. We don't stand on top of the Bible and we don't stand beside it. And what I mean is, standing on top of the Bible means that you get to rewrite certain things depending on how you feel that day or depending on whether or not the Bible agrees with how you wanna feel that day. We don't stand on top and authority over the Bible. We don't stand beside it either. Standing beside the Bible means that you just omit certain things depending on how you feel that day or depending on what you wanna do with your life. We don't stand beside it. We're not shoulder to shoulder with the Bible. We're not above it. We are under the word of God. We stand underneath it. That means this, 
We don't decide what we believe about life and practice and godliness and then come to the Bible to back up our beliefs. That's actually heresy. We don't want to do that. We want to come to the Bible and say, God's word, written by God, timeless, cultural and timeless, how should we live? Tell me, book that God wrote, how should we live? How should we submit one to another? How should I live with the person next to me? How should I worship you? How should I go about my life? That's what we want to do. And so today, we come to this book under its authority. We're also a spirit-led church, a spirit-filled church. We believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. God is one, but he exists in three persons, distinct but one at the same time, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not any less God. The Holy Spirit's real, alive, active, along with the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit has all power. Not just God the Father, not just the Son. The Holy Spirit has all power, was there with the Father and the Son when he formed man from the dust and hovered over the waters of the sea that he created when he spoke light into existence. Light, all of light spoke it into existence. He is all powerful. We believe in the Holy Spirit in this church. We believe in the gifts of the Spirit. We're both Bible honoring and Spirit filled, which means we need to submit to the Bible and the Holy Spirit today in order to understand this really complex word. So we're gonna pray for just that. I'm gonna pray for you. I want you to pray for me that we be Bible honoring and spirit filled people for the next hour or so in this church. Lord, it is a fact that you save people. And it's also a fact that you preserve those that you save. God, we ask for the preserving work of God today through your word. We ask, Lord, that you would help us submit, help us learn to follow you. Holy Spirit, we need your help in this room. We, pray, we ask, Lord, Holy Spirit, that we would be every bit as alive right now and every bit as humble right now as we were 15 minutes ago when we were singing and baptizing, Lord. We ask for the current of God in this room. Help us submit and learn and be teachable in this room. Let the word teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. As you approach the Bible and your private reading, I do pray that you would read it privately, um, but then also as we approach it as the gathered church, there are two things that we've gotta be aware of when it comes to the word. We like to put them in opposition to each other and they're not. That the Bible is timeless and cultural. Timeless and cultural. We like to think it's timeless versus cultural. Meaning this, thinking that we can divide the Bible into two categories, timeless things and only cultural things. Timeless, meaning all things that apply to both them then and us now. Things that we like, love your neighbor. Um, confess your sin, ask for forgiveness, forgive others. We're like, yep, that's timeless, we'll go with that. That was meant for them and that was meant for us too. Or then cultural, cultural meaning things that only apply to the original reader and don't apply to us. They become labeled as irrelevant for our lives. The problem with pitting timelessness versus cultural is that the Bible is both timeless and cultural at the same time. 
You cannot have one without the other. This book is alive. It has a heartbeat. So the cultural things, and it would be so easy, maybe more than anywhere else in Scripture, for us to dismiss today's text and say, well, just culture. Doesn't apply to me. Head coverings? (laughs) And don't worry, I'm going to say this multiple times. We're not going to give out haircuts for men today and, and ask women to wear hats from now on. The Bible is both timeless and cultural. A lot today is cultural, but none of it should be dismissed. It was written by God for them and for us. And according to 2 Timothy 3.16, what we believe is this. All Scripture, say it with me, all Scripture, say it one more time, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Our study through this entire book is about a town, is about a church in a town called Corinth. Corinthians was a letter written to a church planter, the person who planted that church, to this town, to this church in this town. The town was crazy. There was all kinds of cultural trauma around. The torrent, winds of culture, was blowing pretty wildly and rapidly, much like it is here today. In our study through this book, we get to the 11th chapter of this book. We've heard lots of things about how Paul, how God through Paul would correct his church And when you preach through the Bible, you don't get to skip over the hard parts. The context of the whole book matters greatly. The last three chapters, we talked about things like, don't go to the temple and worship idols by eating food offered to them. And it's not necessarily because there's any power in the idols, but it's because of your brother next to you. What if somebody sees you doing that and they just came to Christ and they got saved out of an idol-worshiping life? What about them? For three chapters, seven through 10, Paul talks to them about not worshiping idols. That whole deal is about what church life should look like outside of the church. For the next three chapters, 11 through 14, including today, we're gonna see what Paul would say to us about church life inside the church. So that's where we are today. And in light of this, a few things to remember today as we work through this text. First off, Be in it for the long haul, okay? I'll say that in a little bit more. This is the most preparation I've ever done for a sermon in my life. Be in it. So a few things to remember as we go through this text. One, culture does matter. Can't be dismissed. There is an obvious and massive gap between first century Greco-Roman society, the Greeks and the Romans, There's a massive gap between Greco-Roman society in the first century and 2023 Shawnee, Oklahoma, Pot County, Oklahoma. Two, this section of scripture is in the context of an entire letter, a whole book, and the entire Bible. Scripture testifies to scripture. That's why you cannot just close your eyes and go point one scripture in the Bible and say, well, that means that, but then I look over here and this means that, and they're contradictory. Because when Paul says that, If you try to work for your faith, that's dead. And then James says, if you have faith without works, that's dead. Well, who? Who's right? All of Scripture testifies about all of Scripture. This section of Scripture is in the context of the entire Bible and the entire letter of the first Corinthians. Remember this, that the Corinthians were obsessed with their freedoms. They said, I'm saved, therefore I'm free. I can do whatever I want to do. Third, God wrote these verses. 
Paul is just the vehicle. It is alive. It is written by God. It's profitable. Four, gender matters. The way God has made us matters. The order in which he created us matters greatly. Five, in order to follow Jesus, we must lay down our lives. This is the core issue within cultural Christianity. It's people like the idea of Jesus and like the idea of the church because it's how they grew up. But the reality will always stay the same, that Jesus said, in order to follow me, a man must deny himself, take up his cross. To follow Jesus, we must lay down our lives, and that means all the things that we think God should do or the way he should be. There's only one God, and he's not, we didn't create him. And number six is this, just stay with me. Stay with me. We need all these verses today to understand the heartbeat of this scripture. And I think if you will stay with me, we'll see just how beautiful the word of God is. Kathy Keller says it this way. We must find a way to obey faithfully whatever we discover to be God's revealed will, even if our cultural situation has changed since it was first revealed. All right, let's jump in. Verses two through three A. We're gonna talk about first century Greco-Roman culture. Paul says this to the Corinthians, who has, he has been just straight up correcting one right after another. Now I correct you. No, Paul says to the Corinthians. Now, if you've been a part of this sermon series, this should be shocking to you. Paul says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand something. Paul starts with something a little surprising. Like we said, I commend you. Is he being sarcastic? <laughs> I think he's telling the truth. I think he really does commend them. It's interesting how quick we are to critique each other and how slow we are to encourage. If Paul has encouragement for the Corinthian church, you can have encouragement for the person sitting next to you in the rest of this church. That's a whole nother sermon, but somebody say Amen. They are asking questions. Paul's commending them. You're asking questions you want to know. Now, church in Corinth, you're a hot mess. You're doing some stuff, saying some stuff, acting in some ways. Like you're trying to, you're doing all kinds of crazy stuff, but I commend you because at least you're asking me questions. And I can vouch for this. As a pastor, it's like, I don't care what the question is. If you ask the question, I'm the same way, man. Let's, that means that lets me know you want to know. When somebody disappears, when somebody starts to formulate their own thoughts about God and about the Bible, just in their room by themselves, or particularly with what culture says, that's when we're in trouble. I commend you, Paul says, because you remember and maintain, but I want you to understand something. The next several chapters and weeks of sermons will all be centered around the practice of worship services within the church. Again, Corinthian church is off the rails. Paul will methodically and thoroughly address each issue or question raised. And remember, it's in the context of first century Greco-Roman world. They had different customs and ideals than we do today, but still the same struggles. All right, let's jump right into this. Head coverings. Verse four. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. 
For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let, their co- let her cover her head. Lots of times the word head is used there. He's saying that when a man prophesies, speaks, or leads in the church, prays, when he covers his head, it is shameful. But when a woman prophesies, speaks, prays, leads, when she uncovers her head, it's shameful. Well, let's remember a few things. The Corinthian church had an addiction to the approval of culture and an addiction to comfort. It was hard for them, like it is us, to consider themselves to be a people set apart, according to 1 Peter 2.9. And the city of Corinth was a buffet of places to worship instead of the church. There were temples everywhere in this town. They were known as the temple town. You could go and worship anything, and in case you ran out of stuff to worship, they had multiple temples that was just for whatever you want. Just, you woke up that day and decided, you know what, I'm going to make up a God. You could go to a temple and call it the temple of that God that day. Just whatever. They loved the idea of worshiping. They loved the idea of being spiritual people. There were temples for every type of God. Pagan worship was at the center of society. They had temple prostitutes. Remember, idol food, food offered up to idols. That was an act of worship. They were obsessed in Corinth with culture and less obsessed with God. So what's the big deal about hair here? Well, in 2023, hair has little to no bearing on someone's witness or social status in this world. It's just hair. I can feel some of the dudes in the room have a little bit longer hair starting to sweat a little bit. After reading that sermon, after reading that text, we're not gonna cut your hair. We're not gonna hand out hats. It's weird to us here, it doesn't really matter, but in first century Roman culture, hair was seen as a mark of identity. It was either your shame or your beauty. Verses 14 and 15 allude to this. Men with long hair in the first century, in the first century, dudes, were seen as a denial of masculinity and to be shameful for them. Women, women's long hair was seen as a mark of her beauty and identity. So you can imagine, if she cut it off, something shameful had happened. And a head covering, a head covering was a mark in the first century of her commitment to modesty and her commitment to her husband. Culture of the entire city ran through pagan temples with their rituals and liturgies. So what happened is men who were participating in those pagan rituals and particularly those that were leading them They would cover their head to do so. It was just a cultural artifact. Dr. Bruce Winter, who's helped me so much, said, not all participants drew the toga over their heads, only those taking a lead part in a local pagan rite, i.e. sacrificing or praying. So you can imagine, before a man goes up to sacrifice to another god in Corinth, in first century Corinth, he would put something over his head and then make the sacrifice. It was his act of worship. So Paul says this, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. I love this. Paul's a brilliant writer. It's a play on words, head, multiple times. He's talking about God who is the head over him now. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered is dishonoring to his head. 
Meaning, your honor and glory is Christ now, not your idolatry. Stop acting like the world around you. Corinthian man, you're not in a pagan temple. You're in the temple of the one true God. Then women in head coverings. He goes on to say, verse 5, Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So interesting. It's actually more emphasized here with women than men, more involved. Let's talk about Corinth for a minute. Corinth was an over-sexualized culture. Sex was worshipped. A prevailing thought at the time was that the body doesn't matter, therefore what I do with it doesn't matter. Only the soul matters, if even that. Women in particular were having a revolution of sorts, a sexual revolution of sorts. The only thing I could compare it to that we would know anything about would be what happened in the 60s here in America. In the name of freedom, they were throwing off their commitments to their husbands, throwing off this veil. A particular problem was older women sleeping with younger men, so much so that the Roman ruler, Augustus, passed legislation on marriage, remarriage, and divorce. If you have gotten so bad as a society that your pagan ruler needs to pass legislation on you, it's bad. Bruce Winter says this, Augustus thought that the licentious and adulterous conduct of married women with younger single men who were avoiding marriage was responsible for the falling birth rate among Roman citizens and the breakdown of family values. Again, a pagan ruler passes legislation about family values. We're off the rails as a society at that point. First century Corinthian woman would have had a sign that said, I am married, I am bound. Much like our wedding ring today. That sign for her would have been a head covering. A symbol of fidelity. A woman with her hair down and without a covering would have been seen as sexually provocative like that of a temple prostitute. And a woman with a cropped or shaved hair would have been known as one who was caught in adultery. So what happened was you had women that would be caught in adultery and because Augustus was so worried about what was happening in his town, kind of crazy, they would be prosecuted. And in their prosecution, their sentencing would, would have meant being sold into slavery. And the mark of their being a slave would have been that they would have shaved their head. Lots of cultural context. Now in the church, inside the church in Corinth, again, remember there's a sexual revolution happening led by women outside of the church. Women inside the church in the name of freedom were uncovering their head to stand and prophesy and pray. It would have been on the same level today as a married woman in our church in this gathering right now standing up, taking off her wedding ring, setting it down, announcing I'm free, and then saying I've got a word from the Lord for the congregation. Be tough to hear. So men were covering their heads and wives were uncovering their heads all for the sake of cultural appropriation. 
Look, the problem the Corinthians faced is the problem that we face now with regards to how God has ordered our world and ordered our gender. Will we stand against the torrent of culture that says gender is what you make it? Be whatever you want to be so long as it makes you happy and fulfilled. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. A culture that says no to all authority and yes to all autonomy. The only true authority is the authority of myself and that changes every five minutes. If God is real, then surely he won't put any limitations on us and wants us to be free, which means that we get to be whoever we are no matter what the consequences are. For the Corinthian, they were faced with the same kind of resistance. They were failing to say they are a disciple of Jesus without any respect or submission to his authority. It is not a disciple. He just becomes another God to add to the shelf of all the other gods, and particularly the God of self. As we move throughout the rest of this sermon, these are the questions that we're facing and that you need to face today. Do we submit to the authority of God through his word? Do we trust that he's done the math and that he knows how we're supposed to approach life? Do we want to follow Jesus? And most important, the most important question, is he good? Is God actually good? The answer to that last question, I think we'll find, discover today, yes, he's good, and the way he's created us is good too. Stay with me. We're gonna work through this really quickly. We'll have notes on the screen. If you take notes, um, now's the time to start. Maybe you've already started, I don't know. There is a way that God has made us, it's called created order. We have our context. We need to make sure that we don't stop just with context. Paul doesn't. There are always reasons behind why we get what we get in regards to what's being addressed. It would be easy for us to say, okay, all that's context. It doesn't really apply to me, which would be a mistake and essentially give us all grounds to, uh, to throw out all of Scripture or any Scripture we don't like. But the Bible says all Scripture is profitable. And I can identify with Vaughn Roberts in his helpful commentary when he says this, I am conscious that these issues can be very emotive and will try to tread carefully and not cause any unnecessary offense. I certainly make no claim to infallibility, so please do not take my word for anything I write, but rather study the Bible for yourself to see if you agree or not. My prayer is today that if you are offended, that it will be against the stone of offense, which is Jesus, the rock of offense, that the gospel will be the thing that confronts us. The core issue, like we said, is not head coverings. That was connected to their culture. The real issue is how they have rejected God's design. And what follows, Paul is gonna use two illustrations to drive at gender distinctions. Men were against women, women were against men. Husbands, wives, wives, and husbands. And Paul says, you be a man, you be a woman, you be a wife, you be a husband, and do that together as one, worshiping God. He's gonna use two illustrations to drive home the point. The first, the nature of God, Trinity, and the second is creation. Let's talk about men and women. Verse three, he says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of, of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. There is a debate about what the word head means among several of the guys that I read. Does it mean authority, or does it mean source? Head meaning like the head of a river, the source of a place, or does it mean authority? 
Authority meaning having authority. Based on other passages in the New Testament and also based on the kind of bad theology you get, if you start saying that God the Father is the head of Christ, is the source of Christ, you get really bad Trinitarian theology that does not bear witness in the rest of Scripture. The Bible is very clear. Christ was never, ever made. Nobody made him. God the Father did not make Christ. He was born, begotten as a man, but he had eternally coexisted with the Father in full satisfaction. Based on that and based on other parts of the New Testament, I believe that the word head means authority. But it's crucial to note something. Paul is not arguing for a chain of command along the lines of God the Father, Christ, man, and woman with woman at the bottom. That's not what he's doing at all. He is telling us something beautiful and profound about the relationship of the father and son as it relates to the relationship of man and woman and particularly husband and wife in a marriage. There are three relationships here. One, Christ to humanity, father, son, and spirit. Two, husband as head to wife. Three, God the father as head to God the son. So... (laughs) So basically, three massively complex things all wrapped up in one sermon for those of you guys who are keeping score. First thing we gotta talk about is the nature of God, what he uses to drive home his point. The nature of God within the Trinity is this. God the Father and Christ are the same God but not the same person. Christ has no different value, worth, dignity, and equality than God the Father. However, in the incarnation, not eternally, but in the incarnation, you know what I mean by that? When Jesus was born, became a man, the incarnation meaning flesh, putting on flesh, in the incarnation, but not eternally, Christ submitted to the Father. He and the Father are not interchangeable. They are distinct, neither of which was created, both eternally coexisting in total and perfect harmony. God did not create us because he was bored or lonely. He created us out of the overflow of his love, which is eternal, his self-giving, life-giving love. In the same way, our genders are not interchangeable. Men and women are distinctly and wonderfully made. There are no other ways of being made. We are, of course, made. We didn't make ourselves. We didn't think of ourselves God thought of us and makes us uniquely. In our mother's womb, he knits us together. Every person is made by God. God made us equally in value, equally in our dignity, equally in our worth. There's no such thing as unequal ground when it comes to men and women and their value and their dignity and their worth. Jesus on earth submitted to the Father and it was for his joy that he did that. That is a crazy way for us now I, I feel like half of us have been triggered already just with the word submission. A crazy way for us now to look at submission as Jesus having done it for his joy. You remember how the Bible describes the cross in Jesus? It says it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Christ didn't lose himself in his submission to God the Father. Christ didn't have an identity crisis in the garden when he said, not my will but yours. He set his face like flint towards the cross, knowing exactly who he was and exactly what he came for. In fact, 
It was under his submission to the Father that his ultimate joy came and gave him his eternal identity. And you know what that is? The name that is above every name. This is the same thing that he's pointing to as it relates to husbands and wives. Even though it's hard for us to swallow at times. Wives to husbands as he submits to Christ. It takes that, it takes submission to Christ to lead well. Paul uses the Trinity to show distinction between man and woman, and now he's going to show this distinction through creation. In creation, look at verse seven. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Cue the eye rolls in the room. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created from, for woman, but woman for man. All right, before you all freak out, let me remind you something. Paul is again making a statement for both our dignity as men and women and also our distinctions as men and women. So let's talk about those. For men, this is not to promote arrogance or an idea of superiority to, to women. A man in that culture in that day would have already had superiority, would have already thought of themselves as superior to women. Paul is preaching against that culture. Paul is saying to the man this, simply this, you are forgetting where your true glory is. Men that cover your head, you are dishonoring your head. In praying and prophesying with your head covered, you're glorifying yourself. You've forgotten your identity, which is made in the image of God and redeemed by him and for his glory. The glory of man, the glory of mankind, is Christ. There is nothing more hum humbling than the reality of when our heads get straight on the gospel, when we remember God didn't have to save me, but he did. And he did the work. And I'm saying that to say this, like Paul's reminding them of the gospel. Look at the glory of Christ man and woman. Stop living in opposition to each other. Look at what God has done for you. When you sense it, you remember all the way back in the first chapter of Corinthians, Paul said the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It makes no sense to them. But to us, it's the power of God unto salvation. How can something so far-fetched make so much sense to my heart? Because it is. It's the power of God for those who are being saved. And he's just telling them, and I would tell you today, remember the glory of God. While you're running around, while you're just so consumed with other things, with your own glory, with how someone treats you or how they don't treat you or what you do and don't deserve. When the gospel comes back into focus that none of us, none of us deserve God to even look on us. Nobody did. I don't care how good you think you are. Your bank account doesn't matter. None of that matters. How you voted, don't matter. Nobody can look on God. He is, he is holy beyond holy. And when we don't even deserve for him to look on us, what he did was not just look on us. He gave himself eyes. He became a human. Do you understand what I'm saying? And then died the most brutal death in history to redeem us so that we can be saved because we deserve to die that death and we didn't because he did it for us. 
You see what I'm saying? The gospel changes all of a sudden what I think I deserve or how offended I get. Paul's saying to the man, you, you're, you're, forgetting where you're, you're forgetting your glory. You're forgetting what you should be glorifying. Now for the woman, why say that she is the glory of man? Women are made in the image of God just like men. But Paul is also saying that women are the glory of man. The fact is this, and this is a fact. The way that God has created humanity was male and female. He created them man, and out of his side, he created woman. Women made in the image of God just like men. Paul is also saying that they're the glory of men. I will say it to you like this. The fact that something so wonderful, beautiful, intelligent, prophetic, poised, patient, hardworking, sweet, as a woman could be created out of a man. I don't know a man in this room that would disagree with the fact that, yeah, that's the glory. <laughs> that's the glory. Andrew Wilson helps us with this illustration. He's a theologian we love. I have an apple tree in my garden which produces apples from which we make apple crumble. The crumble is the glory of the apple. It reflects its goodness in every way and brings honor to it. And the apple is the glory of the tree and none of the three are superior or inferior to the other two. Men and women bear God's image together and reflect God's glory on earth in different and complementary ways. An apple tree starts with a seed. It grows into a tree. Nobody wants to eat the bark of an apple tree. If you do, you probably, you probably need to talk to somebody after this is over with. Out of the tree comes an apple. There are some people in the room that would love to eat that apple, but if you're like me, and you go, this is okay, but I bet we can make it better. And then comes an apple crumble, which is one of my favorite things in the world to eat. You start to see things like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. The crumble is the glory of the apple, is the glory of the tree, is the glory of the seed. In the same way, the woman is the glory of man. Out of the man comes something with so much flavor. You get my point. And when we are functioning in our distinctiveness, we both bring flavor to the world. This is why the Bible, Bible talks about us being salt, seasoning the world to the glory of God. The roles of men and women are distinct. The roles of husband and wife are distinct. The husband is not the wife and the wife is not the husband. Both have distinct roles within the marriage with only one, the husband leading the marriage, only under the authority of Christ. And how Von Roberts, again, sums it up is helpful. The wife is called to submit to her husband's headship, just as the church should submit to Christ, according to Ephesians 5. This does not imply that she is expected to be the lapdog of a brutal, domineering husband always at his beck and call. She is her husband's equal in both creation, Genesis 1, and salvation, Galatians 3.28, and has no less dignity and worth than him. It will be entirely appropriate at times for her to disagree with him and even plead with him to change his mind, but she should nonetheless acknowledge that the ultimate leadership in the relationship belongs with him. He goes on to say, this is certainly not an excuse for him to abuse his position in a selfish and demeaning way, he is called to live up to the perfect self-sacrificial example of Christ and love his wife, quote, 
just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Christ is the perfect head who sets the standard for all human headship. What an example we have in Christ. He shows us the meaning of true sacrificial love and his submission to the Father all the way to the cross. Because of Christ, humanity is offered eternal life and flourishing that will be made complete when he returns. Do you see what came out of submission? Same is true for wives and husbands. God has so set up our marriages and relationships in such a way that a wife will flourish when led by a husband who flourishes first under Christ. Lead under Christ. And follows his sacrificial example in his love and leadership for his wife. Remember the main issue that's happening in Corinth. Remember this with me. Men and women are dishonoring each other. They're fighting against each other for superiority. They're trying to divorce and follow Jesus. That happened earlier in the letter where they were saying, should we divorce our spouse to follow Jesus? Paul's like, no. <laughs> no. What is happening with your brain right now? No. You can't divorce. You can't say you worship God and then do the things that brings pain to him. You know, it doesn't make sense. Worship God with your marriage. I feel this in the Bible Belt in 2023 right now in our church. We love the idea of worshiping God in a song. And man, I love it. Our church goes for it. I want us to go for it more. When we sing, we worship. But we struggle with the idea of worshiping God when we leave the room. What about worshiping God in the way that we treat wait staff on a Sunday? What about worshiping God in our conversations throughout the week? What about worshiping God with our paycheck? They're fighting for superiority. They're, they're trying to divorce and follow Jesus. This doesn't make sense. They don't understand worship. They're arguing over, the Corinthian church, particularly men and women, were arguing over who are more spiritual. Fighting for independence from one another. Paul is fighting against these things, against disunity and for unity by pointing to created order and to help us realize that God has intention in the way that he designed us, which is ultimately for his worship. When we all submit to the way God created us, we become true worshipers, true humans. And then he covers our head with his authority and his goodness. Step outside the authority of God's created order, and all hell breaks loose, and we're confused, desperate, anxious, and devouring type of people. Verse 10, this is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head uh, because of the angels. You know, naturally, <laughs> just because of the angels. Which, by the way, you now have permission to just use that like I've been doing with all the other, my other buddies that are preaching it this Sunday. We just keep saying, well, because of the angels. If I ask you to do something and you say why, any parent in the room and your child says why, you can just say because of the angels. <laughs> That's what Paul did. <laughs> this is, oh man, off the rails. This is why... A wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, symbol of authority now, later on. Not just, I think, 
and according to Von Roberts, who I read a lot, not just a symbol of her marriage, not just a symbol, not just a mark of submission, but now a symbol of authority. I think it's her own authority and freedom to now pray and prophesy and lead within the congregation. Her authority given not by her becoming a man or acting like a man, but by her being a woman who speaks. A committed and dedicated woman who speaks. A woman who says, I'm following Jesus in my marriage. And you know why? Again, because of the angels. Come on, guys. I honestly have no idea what to do with that. There's a couple of thoughts. One is because angels means messengers. There were Roman officials that were going around to different churches at that time and kind of keeping track of what was going on. Paul says, um, we, we want to show, I mean, this would have been so countercultural. We want to show that this is what happens in the church, that a woman is both committed to her husband and also prophesying and praying in a gathered assembly. It could have been about fallen angels, uh, fallen angels who are by nature antithetical to authority. They are fallen because they're antithetical to authority. Paul says maybe angels are the one. I don't know why. I'm gonna stop trying to explain it and just move on. <laughs> Verse 11, Paul's now moving into a really important fact that men and women are not dependent of each other. They are interdependent. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman and all things are from God. All right, this is the moment you have all been waiting for. It's for me what I love. It's the deep breath to go, yes, woman was created out of the man's side, but you know what? Every man from then on that has ever been made has come from a woman. I see lots of head nods in the room. And then most important is God is over all things. You could not come up with that order of creation on your best day. Woman from man, now all men from women. If that doesn't promote interdependency, if that doesn't promote an equality under the headship of Christ, God is the head. We are under him. Men and women need each other, both created by God and under his authority with the purpose of complementing each other in bringing glory to God. What Paul intends is not for this to divide men and women, husbands and wife, but to lead us to more unity and love and appreciation of each other and our distinctions within the good design of God. Men and women complementing each other to the glory of God. The goal of marriage, the goal of relationships is to glorify God and to look to him in all things. And with that in mind, we can gladly submit to the ways God has distinctly made us male and female and work to complement each other in our pursuit of God in our practice of worship in the church. In a nutshell, here is what Paul is saying. Men in the room, you should pray, you should prophesy, you should lead as a man. Be a man. Women in the room, you should pray, you should prophesy, you should lead as a woman. Be fully that. It sounds reductionistic, but that is the core of what's happening here. Own how God made you because he in fact did make you. Do it under the authority of God. 
Do it submitted to him, submitted one to another, embracing your roles as men and women. Von Roberts, our gender is not just a thin veneer spread over our bodies, but is much more fundamental. The nine biological differences between men and women are not all to do with culture and nurture, but have much to do with creation and nature and therefore still apply in Christ's kingdom. Our gender is not merely biological. It is integral to how we are made from our very core. And so also equally important as to how we worship God and live our lives. So look, as we close today, and I'm approaching that, you've done a great job staying in it so far. As we close, I wanna bring our attention to something that drives home the point that Paul is trying to make about gender and authority being for our ultimate good and the glory of God. I wanna talk about the role of women in the first century church. One thing that is absolutely crucial to our understanding of the New Testament is the way that women were treated was revolutionary. And I mean that. That is not, I'm not trying to reduce that word. I know what the term rev- revolutionary means. I know the definition. I'm not just using it uh, to exaggerate, to prove a point. It literally, that word means to change culture, revolutionize a thing. I mean what I say. The way the Bible, the way the New Testament treated women was revolutionary. It changed everything. And it was directly and diametrically opposed in Greco-Roman culture. In first century, women were treated as sex objects only. They weren't even allowed to speak much at all, but especially in a public setting. Jewish men would thank God daily for not making them a woman. No Jewish rabbi would ever dare to speak directly to a woman. Jewish women were not even allowed to sit with Jewish men in the synagogue. They sat separate. And then what happens is Jesus comes along and totally upends all of those ways of thinking. And the New Testament follows his lead. Jesus had women, Jesus as a rabbi, had women in his group of followers. And although their testimony would not have been heard in a court, Jesus appears first to women after his resurrection. Now I want you to think about that on a practical level. The most important witness of all time. There has never been a court case that needed more important truthful, factual witnesses ever than the resurrection of Jesus. That is the most important moment in history. We cannot mess this up. We have to get it right. People have to know that Jesus has risen from the dead. Who do we trust to tell? Jesus comes to women first. And we're evidence of their trustworthiness. Paul promotes radical new doctrines, doctrines in the New Testament that would have been a culture shock to the first century as it pertains to women. And back in chapter 7 of this book, in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, Paul makes a statement. He says, men have authority over their wives' bodies. Every man in that first century would have said, yes, of course, we know that, Paul. Thanks for telling us something we know. But what would have led to revolt was what he said next. Women 
have authority over their husbands' bodies. Countercultural, to say the least. And in our chapter today, 1 Corinthians 11, he champions something that would have been so crazy. In the Jewish synagogue, in any sort of public gathering, women were not allowed to speak or even sit with men, much less lead and prophesy and pray, much less say, I have a word that I think is from God that it wasn't, I didn't get it from my husband. I got it from myself. God gave it to me, and I think I have a word from the Lord for the church, which we love here. He champions them speaking, praying, and even prophesying in the gathered assembly of the church. Verse five, but every wife who prays or prophesies, every wife who prays or prophesies. In closing today, I wanna leave you with this. The way that God has made you is beautiful. The way God has designed his church is beautiful. Full of broken people who all come under the same banner. And most of the time, we reluctantly come under the same banner. And that is this. God is worthy of my life and worthy of my worship. This is the function of the church, is to bring glory to God and to submit to his authority. Because we're so bent to bring glory to ourselves, it takes letters to Corinthians (laughs) It takes correction, it takes encouragement, it takes each other, and it takes a first century letter written to a church that struggled in the same way. Paul knows it, and that's why he says to close, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. That's how he closes this section. And I feel that. There's probably some contentiousness about things that were said today, but Paul would say this, And I would agree, and especially in Pot County, man, where leaving a church is just like, it's like going from one grocery store to the next. We do a lot of church hopping in this this county, and most of it comes out of when somebody says something we disagree with or does something we disagree with, we move on to the next place. And Paul is basically saying here, if any church that preaches the gospel, they will preach this, because it is the gospel. So he says, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor does any other church that preaches the gospel, nor do the churches of God. For us as we leave, men, lead. Lead. Lead yourself. Lead your wife. Lead the church. Submit to Christ. Be a godly man. Be a man that loves Jesus. Be a man that works hard. Lead. Live in full devotion to God. Worship God as a man, as a godly man, a man shaped by the word of God, a man devoted to the church, following Jesus in your whole life, whether you're married or single. Women, live in full devotion to God. Worship God as a woman a godly woman, shaped by the word of God, devoted to the church, following Jesus in your whole life, whether married or single, men and women together, fight for each other. Be great husbands and wives and sisters and brothers. Be selfless and servant-hearted. Rely on each other. Champion each other. You're made to need each other. You're made to be interdependent. 
My prayer for us here would that we would be men that champion women and women that champion men and look and go, that's my brother. I, I respect him, I love him, I'm with him, I pray for him, I hold him up and for him to go, that's my sister. I pray for her, I hold her up, I respect her. I love her thoughts, I love her words. We need them in the church. We need them. That'd be my prayer. We don't always do that here. We don't. But let's do the work of repentance today. When we come to communion, let's do the work of repentance. Let's take communion together as men and women under the banner of God. And let's say, you know what? We're gonna, we're gonna champion each other. That's what we're gonna do.